It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. If you had the opportunity to listen to the interview I had with Susan Palmer a few weeks ago, you heard her mention Pam Fredrickson, the leader of the Cama Beach Quilters. The Cama Beach Quilters are the most lovely quilters with a mission to make quilts for the state park's cabins, bringing back a little history to the park. The quilts are also for sale, and the proceeds go to supplies and interpretive programs in the park. Pam is retired, but her volunteer activities keep her busier than when she was working. Pam, thanks so much for being on A Quilter's Life. Good morning, Paula. I'm glad to be meeting with you today. It's wonderful to have you on here. Let's start with where you were born and raised. Well, I'm a native Iowan. I was born in Davenport, Iowa, which is 100,000. It's not really a totally rural state, though I did spend most of my years as a kid in a town of 2,000. And went to a college in Iowa and went back to Davenport, where I was born, to teach French for 34 years. Oh, wow. So I spent 60 years in Iowa. Did you ever get to go to France to use your French? Many, many times, yes. I took students and traveled there a lot on my own as well. My husband, my late husband, was also a French teacher, and we met by sharing a classroom. And we were kind of trailblazers in being a married couple in the same building, which was verboten in 1965. We had to get special permission. Oh, wow. There's just things that we don't realize unless we hear a story like that of things that went on. We're interesting things like that. When my son, my only son was born, the contract said that I could not return to the classroom until 12 calendar months from the date of confinement. Not only was there no maternity leave, it was just, you're out of there. Wow. Hmm. But I went back and managed to get the same job because the person who replaced me had a double major and she went up to biology and I went back to French. Oh, neat. Yeah, they didn't have to hold your job for you back then. No, nope. Well, I was guaranteed a job but I was going to be out in a little rural community and I was not looking forward to that. And fortunately at the last minute, things fell into position and it worked out. It actually happened that way twice. I took a year off for grad school as well and got my same job back as did my husband. We got very lucky. Yeah. Do you have a special childhood memory? Oh, I have one actually that's associated with quilts that comes back to me often, and that's taking naps at probably an age where I thought that was inappropriate. And I would squirm around on my parents' bed on a quilt, trying to match up the various fabrics. It was a pinwheel of some sort or a Dresden plate. Well, I think I still have that quilt. It was like feed sacking, and I would see a red flower here, and then I'd look around the top and find another one. And that's one of my best childhood memories, I think. Oh, neat. So you made 
a regular quilt into an I Spy quilt. Yes, I did. And I think I've always been attracted to textiles, though growing up in Iowa, we didn't have any industry like that. And I think if I had it to do over again, I would be really attracted to doing something with textiles. I really enjoy working with fabric. Wow. So neat. I'm just curious here. Did you sew other than quilting? quilting oh, yeah. I still have my first sewing machine. It's one of those singers kids machine that makes a chain stitch and has a little hand crank. And I still have the box that came in. And I actually made myself a blouse when I was in maybe fifth grade on that machine. And then I graduated to a featherweight and had nothing but that until I was well into my adult years. And I still own a featherweight. And I still sew on a 301. So I'm not a fancy machine person at all. It's just basic stitching to make quilts. Mm -hmm. You said you still sew on a featherweight. Is it the same featherweight or did you get a different one? I think my mother gave our featherweight to one of her friends, but I tracked one down. I don't even remember now when or where that was, but I know a lot of people who swear by their featherweights, except it's a little slow for me. So the 301 is its big sister with a slant needle and a bigger motor. So that's the one that I use by preference. Well, we talked some about your employment of being a French teacher. Now, that was high school, right? Right. And with trying to get into your brain a little bit, what was your thought process in deciding to become a French teacher? Well, like many important things in my life, it just happened. I had avoided foreign language in high school. We moved when I was 14, and I signed up for Latin and found out I was the only sophomore in a class with freshmen. So I switched to typing, and I ended up making money in college by typing. I always had office jobs, so that turned out to be a very good choice. And the first fall, I thought, okay, I should take a foreign language. And I wavered back and forth between Latin and French and somehow opted for French, fell in love with it in the first semester and declared a major in January. And it just went nonstop. And I ended up going to summer school and finishing college in three years and beginning to teach in high school at age 20 because I have an October birthday. So I was just a couple years ahead of my students in many ways. I taught first and second year French and I'd only had it for three years. But I had had a summer in France at a French camp, which was a real eye-opener for me because I was the only non-French person there. And I learned a lot of slang, and it was not without some rough spots, but it was very helpful in getting me ready for going to the classroom in the fall. So being just a couple years older when you first started, that could be a benefit or detriment. How did you see it? Well, the turnover of teachers was big at that time. There were 20, some of us, that started out together. And I think at the end of my career, in the same classroom, in the same building, which is still there from like 1904, though it's been remodeled since I retired 24 years ago, but there were a number of us who were newbies. And so it wasn't really a problem. But 
I can remember kids saying, oh, you want to go to the prom with me? Or a principal saying, your skirts are a little bit short. (laughs) There were some uncomfortable moments, but I made it through. And I do remember some early students and I think, oh, I did that wrong. And that goes back to 1963. So some of those memories stay with you. Yeah. Where do you live now? And how did you end up going there from Iowa? Well, as I told you, I do these knee-jerk things that are major. That I've always bought houses that way. I buy things for the house before there's even ink dried on paper. There's not even been any paper. I just know what I want when I see it. And our son, who went to school in Massachusetts, college, and then decided he wanted to live in Seattle, drew us out to this area. And we found a Spanish teacher who needed somebody to house sit and dog sit while she took students to Central America. And we would read the Seattle paper and we saw, oh, there was going to be a new over 55 community near Stanwood. And we had to look it up on the map because to get here, you're on a dead end. The road to us doesn't go anywhere other than here. And so you have to discover it. And we drove out one summer day while we missed Stanwood because we didn't see anything that attracted us. We were expecting billboards that we had all over in the Midwest that would lead us to the place where we were going. This is, I don't know, 2003 and no GPS or anything. And we missed Stanwood and drove across a bridge and we're on an island. And we circle around the top part of the island. Kameno is actually about five by seven miles, 52 miles of coastline with maybe 20,000 people, but there's a lot of people who have second homes here, so it's a very fluid count. And going back into town, my husband just had a knee-jerk reaction of pulling into a real estate office. And lo and behold, there was a realtor who was free for the afternoon, and she said, would you like to look at houses? And we found a house. I'm looking now at the very same view we had that day across five miles of Puget Sound and mountains beyond. Mount Baker is outside my window. And having lived 60 years in Iowa, it was like, wow. And the house was half built. And we signed papers on it a week later, knowing nothing about Camino. And it turned out to be a wonderful choice. It's a fantastic place to live. And I haven't looked back after 18 years. It was a very good choice. Wow. That sounds so beautiful. It is. I send pictures of dawn over the mountains to a friend in California. And she goes, ooh, ah, because she's living on flat land with palm trees. And I'm looking at pine forests and snow-capped peaks across the water. So, yeah, it's a lovely view. Nice. Besides quilting, are there other crafts you do or have done? Uh, Not so much crafts, but I'm involved in a lot of things other than quilting. Gardening is one thing. I've been with a group called Backyard Wildlife Habitat, and I got here about the time that we were going for national certification through the National Wildlife Foundation as a wildlife habitat community, and we were the 10th in the country to get that designation. And there's also a group called Friends of Camino Island Parks, which maintains not only the two state parks here on the island, but also county parks and then some nature conservancy 
projects and we have trails all over the island. And I have adopted a trail that I attempt to maintain. I am in a book group. I'm working like crazy to get a 500-page novel read by a week from Thursday. I had the first little free library that was an actual recorded official little free library in this area going back a handful of years. I do a project at my church, which recycles greeting cards, and we remake them and sell them as a way of making money for missions projects through the church. And I am newly on a local arts advocacy group, and we're in the process of changing a former furniture store into an arts center. It's a very artistic community. There are lots of real bona fide artists who have an open house tour on Mother's Day and the weekend after that, pre-COVID, post-COVID, I hope. So there's a lot of art in our community. And Susan Palmer, whom you interviewed a few weeks ago, is also a member of that group. And she suggested that I might be good to be on the group. So that's a new involvement. And then a big one for me, in addition to the three quilting groups that I'm in, is an organization called Days for Girls that provides reusable menstrual supplies that go all over the globe to maybe 140 countries, I think, in the last 13 years. The founder lives only about 15 miles from here, and she's amazing. And I'm one of the of the leadership team for our local Days for Girls group that's been very active. During COVID, we made masks, thousands and thousands of masks, and I distributed 500 masks through my little free library, which was closed at a point in time when we thought books could transmit COVID. And I put out information about Days for Girls and got more than $1,000 in donations for our projects through that. Wow. You have not so slowed think, down at all, have you? Oh, I think I'm busier now than before I retired. It sounds like it. Well, we have an island that runs on volunteers. We have no governance other than county governance. We don't have a mayor. We don't have a town council. We only recently got our own library. We have our own zip code. We do not have a post office. We do not have a police department. We have a sheriff's department. And so everything is run on volunteers. We really have no industry. The major industry is home building and remodeling, actually. There's still a lot of that going on. But we have commuters and retirees on the island. And we retirees are hoping that some of those who are commuters now will become volunteers as they some leisure time in their schedules as well. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a wonderful community to be a part of. It, it is. It is. Do you think some of these hobbies show up in your quilting? Not necessarily. Days for Girls involves sewing. We make shields and we make bags. It's a whole kit of products in there. And so there is some sewing involved in that. But I just am interested in a whole lot of things. And I really enjoy working with other people who are 
like-minded and motivated to do things for other people. I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. And there's a lot of us around here. It really is an amazing community. For instance, on my block, almost within sight of my house, there are up to nine of us who walk in the mornings around what we call the beach loop. And it takes us about half an hour and we connect on a daily basis with each other and share a lot of things and get a little bit of good exercise and fresh air, if not sunshine. It's been really great lately. It's great today, but it's a wonderful neighborhood. It's like being in a suburb, but with a view and with a laid back vibe. Did someone introduce you to quilting or did you stumble upon it yourself? I think I'd have to call it a stumble. I actually probably go back to the bicentennial. Do you remember that quilting had died out basically in the 50s, 60s? And then in the 70s, there were major contests and things. And that actually was, for those of us who sewed, a polyester era. It was major trying to find cotton. My local fabric shops didn't have cotton. I had to drive to Des Moines, which was 160 miles away, to a place called Mrs. Wiggs Cabbage Patch to buy the most boring calicos you've ever seen for my first quilt because I had been made aware of the fact that there was a quilt club and there were 24 members of it. And they met once a month in the daytime. I never even met these people because I was a full-time teacher, but a friend of mine would transfer what I had done and pick up things and bring them back to me. Each person, once every other year, handed out 24 bags containing blocks with a pattern. And everybody made one of your blocks and handed them in the next month and got a different block. So every two years, wow, you got a quilt top out of it. Except the second time around, somebody had suggested make one of your own. And that actually became one of the first quilts I made for my son. It was about the time he was going to college and I wasn't going to let him take it there and mess it up. So I held it for him until he graduated and gave it to him, and it still got messed up. But by then, I really didn't worry about it. Oh, also, after that, I only did that for two years, and I think the group after the Bicentennial kind of folded. But I had taken a little road trip to an Amish community named Kelowna in central Iowa, went into a Ben Franklin store, and they had a display of quilts way up high around the walls over their fabric department. And I thought, wow, I could do something like that. And about the same time, I opened up the local newspaper and saw an article about a quilt group that was meeting and was decorating a tree for a local festival of trees. And the first meeting I went to, I remember, I came home feeling like I had been at a church revival function. I was just fired up and ready to go. And I just haven't stopped since. And that was 1989. So I am over 30 years into a quilting mode. I have been told about the quilt revival during the bicentennial. Yeah. And I remember getting very nervous when I would hold up a quilt for show and tell. And at the time, I would make a lap size quilt out of scraps. I mean, I, I'm a fabriholic. 
but I don't go out and buy it. It comes to me. I call myself a fabric magnet because I can't tell you how many times people have said, hey, I know somebody who's not quilting anymore. Would you like her fabric? And since I do work with three different groups that make different kinds of quilts and Days for Girls uses lots of fabric, I can usually sort through it. And this is for Cama Beach and this is for CIQ for kids quilts. And this is for crazy quilters at church for the work that we do. So I rarely have to buy fabric. I think I would have been a great pioneer. Let the men raise the barns and I'll make the quilts. And I love making something out of nothing. And I've got tubs of scraps and I cannot use them up. I don't even make a dent when I make a queen size quilt. I don't understand how that happens, but it is true. And I can't throw away scraps. You don't have a minimum? Not really. If I can make, uh, how big would it have to be? If it's two inches wide and three or four inches long, it's a saver. And even I cut off the salvages and save those and use them to tie up bundles of fabric when we're having sales or whatever. I'm very miserly with fabric. What a good idea. I hadn't thought of using it like that. Oh, it's very strong. And we've even used it as drawstrings in little bags that we make at the park for kids to collect some beach stones or whatever in. They're nice, strong but we sell them for a dollar. So if you bought ribbon for the bag, you'd lose money on it. What a great idea. Another idea for salvages, just off the top of my head, a friend of mine here who is kind of a beginning quilter has just discovered library quilts. And for the spine of the book, there are interesting titles on these salvages. Susan Palmer again has designed fabrics that say on them, Cama Beach by Susan Palmer, which looks exactly like what you'd read on the spine of a book. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what my neighbor does with the salvages that some of us have been passing along to her. Oh, that's going to be so neat. Do you happen to have either a favorite quilt or a favorite quilt pattern? Well, I should start by saying probably my go-to is nickel quilts. And there's a story there, too, because Pat Speth, the author of nickel quilts and the person who popularized that whole idea of construction, was a member of my guild in Davenport, Iowa. Davenport and Rock Island, it's a Quad Cities area on the Mississippi River. And... It makes things so easy. I look at a quilt and I can immediately translate that into some of the techniques using five-inch squares. Or I can use those techniques with a six-inch square or an eight-inch square or whatever. But that's been a lifesaver and a go-to thing for me for a long time. My personal favorite quilt and one that I attached a pre-printed label to that said, I gave myself a blue ribbon for this one, was from a workshop that I took with Joan Colvin the late Joan Colvin, unfortunately, who lived near here and who was very well known for beautiful pictorial nature quilts. And she did not long before her death, a two-day workshop with us. And I had just made a trip to Yellowstone Park and had taken a lot of photos. And I thought, oh, 
geysers and fountain paint pots would be fun, but I kind of fell in love with Yellowstone Falls. And she had some techniques for surface texture, including something she called a caterpillar. And by layering fabric, by curling fabric around something like a hot knitting needle or whatever. Anyway, I made a wall quilt that's maybe 20 by 20 that depicts the falls. And I checked out later a photo from like Wikipedia or someplace. And I came pretty close. And there's frothy water at the bottom, which was tulle or something kind of crumpled up and stitched down. And another was a raveled piece of a funky fabric that you would use in a fancy dress, I think. And that was a one-off for me. Basically, my idea is to cover the world in quilts. I want to make quilts that will be used and used up even as I'm using up some of that fabric that I can't use up. But I tend not to do fancy quilts that I'm not going to spend a month making a quilt, let alone a year making a quilt. I really admire people who do that kind of quilting. And I basically think I could do it, but why? I don't want quilts to be just lying around in closets or wherever. I want them to be out there and used and I've seen what they do for people, and there's some amazing stories there as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, we just lost one of our members from the Cama Beach group last weekend, and I understand that she was comforted at that time by a quilt that all of us had made for her a couple of years ago when she was first diagnosed that contained hearts. And it's comforting to know that a quilt like that was there. And I know at the point when my husband died, I was given a quilt by the Cama Beach quilters. And that's a precious memory as well. Yeah, quilts are big hugs. They are. Well, and then also for favorite quilts, I have some that probably should be my favorites because we have a local fair. Again, pre-COVID, we had a fair. But it's just a local fair. It calls itself the best little fair in the West. And every year I've exhibited, I think, three quilts. And three times I've won best of show. One of them was a like a watercolor version of a wedding ring quilt. It had squares and rectangles instead of arcs. And I gave that to friends as a wedding present. And that was a best of show. Another one was an Asian-themed quilt that I put together with a lot of odds and ends and embellished with some dangly, jeweled-looking things and hand-quilted it with gold thread. And that one came out best of show. And have you heard of flower pounding? No, I have not. You tape petals to a piece of, it should be treated muslin with, it's an alum kind of potion mixture that you pre-treat it with. And I took a workshop on that and made just a small wall hanging, and that got best of show. It doesn't look so good these days because their colors change, migrate, whatever. But that was an eye-opener. You didn't have to make a king-size quilt to get best of show. If you did something that was kind of intriguing, it could do that too. So I have really enjoyed taking quilts to the fair. And I got one red ribbon once instead of blue. And it was not something about I had not adequately quilted it. And I did it that way on purpose because of 
the way the quilt was. But anyway, I got over that. But I really enjoy sharing quilts with other people. Yeah. It's fun to see the different perspectives of different quilters. Mm-hmm. How about a tool that you enjoy using? I think my go-to thing is my spring-loaded Fiskars scissors because I cut a lot of batting for Cama Beach, and they just go ripping right along. We've got big bolts, 30-yard bolts of batting, and so I throw it on the floor and just slice right straight across the middle, which is something you can't do unless they're spring-loaded. Another thing in days for girls, the shields that we sew have a lot of curves and points and whatever, and they need to be trimmed along the sides. And it really helps to have that spring loading to make a nice, clean, even cut that goes fast. My clover seam ripper is my favorite, and I lost one a couple months ago and had to go right back and replace it with another one. It fits right. It's got a sharp edge, and it really works well for me. And then I use a thing called a hump jumper is what we call it. I guess there's other names for it. But at those places where you're sewing through a really thick part of a quilt or a quilted piece and the back of the walking foot has a tendency to drag and you tuck this little piece of wood under the back of the foot and it elevates it so that your needle and the foot can run straight across and get over those humps. We got them as a gift through Days for Girls, and I find it useful in a lot of situations because I have this kind of lightweight machine that I usually use, and it needs a little help sometimes when I'm doing multiple thicknesses. Well, I had not heard of that one. Somebody gave me another funky name for it, but I didn't write it down, and I don't remember what it is. But my first one, actually, before I got this fancier one that even has a wood-burning logo for Days for Girls on it, was a folded piece of cardboard with some tape around it, just something to give you a little rise of maybe an eighth of an inch to keep the back end of that walking foot up and keeping the foot straight. Hmm. I'm not sure they're even sold commercially. Yeah. Probably they are, but... I haven't had to look for one. <laughs> when you're quilting, do you like the whole process or do you enjoy one part of the process more than others? You know, when I first started quilting, I was doing it all myself. As I had said that I was making smallish quilts and I was hand quilting them. It was just something mindless to do in the evening watching TV or whatever. And when I graduated to larger quilts, the hand quilting wasn't working that well. And I don't want to spend a couple hundred dollars. I have made hundreds and hundreds of quilts. And if I took them all to a professional, I would not have money for food on the table. So I have made alliances with people who have long arms or who need to practice on long arms. And I'll pass along a top and a back and a bat and say, would you please? And then I take it back and do the binding. And that's the way with these volunteer activities, we get a lot more quilts done that way. So what I'm into basically is the design and the piecing. And the first time I heard somebody say, 
well, I don't so much like the quilting. I like making the tops. And somebody else would say, oh, I don't like making the tops. I'd rather quilt. And I thought that was really weird at first. And now I'm all in with that idea. I think most of us do have a favorite part of it. So if you can find a collaborator, I think that's a wonderful way to go. Everybody comes out ahead. Everybody gets a lot of practice on quilts that are donated. You don't have to worry about selling them or making them as family heirlooms. And we get a lot of quilts done. Mm -hmm. That's a great idea to work with others. And I do pretty much fly by the seat of my pants. When I start a quilt, if somebody says, how big is it going to be? I could not answer that question. It's either when I run out of the kind of fabrics that I'm using or I lose interest in the project or something exterior like that. But I rarely start a quilt knowing where it's going to end up. Last Friday, I was with the group at church and I brought a panel that had beautiful jewel tones in it. And I had some fabric samples that were some of the same colors. And I was going to put those around the edge of this printed panel. Well, a friend comes in and she's got a whole stack of blocks that somebody gave her. And we looked at them and they were exactly the same color. So all of a sudden, what I thought I was going to be doing that day wasn't at all where it ended up. I haven't had time since then to work on it. But we're being amazed at what we can do with putting one thing with another. And I often am given people's UFOs, things that people have spent hours and hours working on and for some reason never finished. And I really love taking something like that and valuing what somebody else put into it and not wanting to have it end up on a rubbish heap and make it into a quilt that somebody will ooh and ah over and love, it's out there in the real world. I find that a really fulfilling part of quilting. Yeah. Or when I don't know what fabrics I'm going to use either, and I'll get to a certain point, oh, I think I need something, and finding just the right piece and ending up with, they could tell you at Kama how many times I come in dangling a little scrap, and that's what's left. I had just enough fabric to do what I needed to do in that quilt. And that's a very rewarding feeling as well. That is, it's almost like winning the bobbin game. <laughs> I lose that one all the time. I'm sewing and sewing and sewing. And then I turn the corner and I realize I haven't been sewing because there's no bobbin thread. Ugh. I think there are some fancy machines that have sensors or something and tell you stop and rewind the bobbin. But yeah. Yeah. Now tell me about your worst quilting experience. Well, I saw that on your list. I'll go back to that first quilt. I am learning along the way, I think. My first quilt turned out not to be a quilt, but a duvet cover. It has never been quilted from the 70s. And that's the one I had to drive 106 miles to buy the fabric for. The next one that I did with that group, I thought, oh, I'm catching on because we made templates out of cardboard and traced around them and cut them with scissors. And I didn't have time to do that teaching full time. So I think I got through Better Homes and Gardens or something, a pre-cut kit with wretched fabric, but I could make my 24 little bags and hand them out to people. And when I put it together, I 
really didn't think I had time to do the binding, so I pillowcased it. But the worst part was I told you that very first quilt I remember from my childhood had virtually no batting in it. And I thought a quilt should be puffy. I put in two fat polyester bats in that one quilt. I pillowcased it. And I'm not sure, maybe I tied it. I don't remember really hand quilting it. And that sat around at my house for a while. I didn't know what to do with it. And one winter, we had some families that were relocated from Africa to Iowa in the middle of the winter, and they needed quilts. And that quilt went to one of the African families. (laughs) And I thought, okay, it's out of mind, out of sight. And then another one that I did early on was a sampler quilt. And it ended up having a ruched border, not by design, but because on the outside, there were triangles on the bias. And I had no idea what I was doing with borders. And I stitched them on there. And it's totally ruffled. Somehow I managed to tame it. I may have had to run a thread through to ease in the fullness, but I still do own that quilt. And it has like a ruched border. Another one, I guess, was I used to watch Alex Anderson all the time. And they were doing a reverse applique. And I had a couple of pieces of fabric that I thought, oh, they've got nice contrast. And so I cut out my snowflake, whatever, and I hand stitched it all. And then I looked at it and realized that some of the same color of each fabric ended up next to each other. So the whole design was lost. And I had done all of this hand applique and put it away for years. And then somehow I came along a plastic container with, I think it was 10 yards of tiny gold beads on a thread and I laid it along the edge where I had done the stitching and made that my quilting. I just ran the thread around each bead and it's a beautiful piece. And it went from what am I ever going to do with that to something that hangs on my wall now. And I think, yes, I never say no. I keep telling people, don't give up on it. Don't put it away because you don't like it. Make it something that you like and get it out there. But sometimes it takes a while to figure that out. It does. I think it's good mental exercise, I think, is definitely a part of quilting, which is why I don't go to a quilt shop and show them a picture and say, give me those fabrics. I want to make this quilt. Somebody else made that quilt. Why would I make it? It's been done. And so I do like the creative part. So that leads into why do you make quilts? What has drawn you to making quilts rather than spending your time doing other things? It's become a habit. I really sew almost every day doing something or another, even if it's only 15 minutes worth. I rarely get a whole day to just sew, but it really is a passion. It's just what I do and As I said, my mission is to cover the world in quilts. I give away virtually all of them. I have no reason to keep any more quilts than I already have. And it satisfies my creative urges, and it's a passion. And we talked a little bit about who you make them for, but over the years, who have you made them for? I've made them for a discovery shop 
like a thrift shop for the Cancer Society that I worked at for about 10 years. And people would donate fabric and I would make a quilt. And there was kind of a pattern to it. A woman would come in and the same woman would seem to buy the quilts. And somebody one day asked her about that. And she said she had a daughter who was autistic and she didn't react to much of anything. She was a toddler. If you laid her on a quilt, she became alive. And it was like, yes, that's one good reason for making a quilt. Our local guild, which has about 150 members, again, that's pre-COVID, everything has changed during COVID. We, as a supposed requirement of membership in the guild, is to donate at least one quilt to a local children's hospital. The church group started out, I guess, as a Linus Project group, but our quilts go to a number of different agencies. Some of them apparently ride around in police and sheriff's cars so that when there's a call of a domestic violence or something, they have teddy bears. They also have quilts to wrap the kids in. They go into Christmas packages for families that can't afford to do that sort of thing. And then for Cama Beach, obviously, I make a number of quilts every year. I think last year I made 13 quilts for our show. This year I'm trying to step back and let other people pick up the gap. But somebody gives me fabric and I think, oh, that has to be a quilt. And there you go. So how many projects are you working on right now? The one that I told you about that happened on Friday, but I've also got some blocks that represent the cabins at Cama Beach that we make into tote bags or wall hangings and sell at the park. And the money goes to support the park. And then I do some sewing for Days for Girls, but I've always got projects going. I have a design wall and there are pieces on there. There's one that said, I quilt, therefore I am, and I've owned it for 10 or 15 years and I've never figured out what to do with it. Someday I'm going to have a eureka moment and that will be my project that day. I often go downstairs and start sewing and have no idea what I'm doing or where it's going. (laughs) You've already given several good tips, but do you have another quilting tip? Well, my big one is don't ever give up. But borders and bindings, I think, are what I believe make or break the quilt. Borders to tame a quilt and making sure that you measure through the center. When they tell you do three measurements, I think the outer edges have to match the center because the center is not going to go anywhere. And so you've got to beat those outer edges into submission. And I've seen beautiful quilts that when they're hung at a show are all rippled on the side and that doesn't have to happen. So measure your borders through the center of your quilt. And by measure, I don't mean with a yardstick or a tape measure. I mean, put it on the wall or throw it on the floor if you can clamber down to work on it there and just lay your fabric on it and cut it to fit and fold it in quarters and match the body of the quilt with the border and your quilt will hang beautifully. And bindings, two and a quarter inches is the standard that I go for. And take care on the mitered corners and do when you stitch bindings, as you join the strips, do it on the diagonal because 
I made a sample for Cama Beach once. I did it with a straight seam and I did it with a diagonal and we counted the layers. And with a straight seam, I think by the time you had the binding, the front and the back of the quilt and four layers of binding, there were 11 layers that you were dealing with. And when you do it on the bias, you've just taken at least four out of the mix. I think you're down to seven layers, which is still a lot. But that makes a big difference to do the binding right and press like crazy. I honestly always go up to linen and full steam, and I've never done any damage. But when a quilt top is turned into a quilter, I think it needs to be perfectly pressed on the back. I open seams by releasing a few stitches, and I iron on the back with a lot of steam. I turn it to the front. I use sizing, and I think they come back so much better from the quilter when they've been prepared that way. Mm-hmm. I was raised with my mom sewing in, saying that the ironing made the difference. So I'm not used to people not pressing the same. You said both pressing and ironing. And yeah, well, it's ironing we in sewing clothing, and it was pressing right. with quilts. Right, so definitely press, press, press. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can never do enough. Well, when I interviewed Susan Palmer, she had mentioned you. Are you the president of the Cama Beach Quilters? No, I'm the leader. Okay. And we're, we're just basically a club. We have no official standing. We're just a group. And the founder of the group, after the first several years, decided to move to Alaska. And all of a sudden, I had all her stuff in my possession. And that was how the leadership was passed. And so... Since then, I've just kind of continued to try to keep it all together, onward and upward. Well, it sounded like such a wonderful group. So I looked up Cama Beach State Park to see Mm -hmm. what you were doing somewhat. And that looks like a lovely place that people can vacation at. It's a 1930s era resort. I still, it blows my mind that during the depression, they built fishing resorts, but there used to be maybe 30 fishing resorts right here on Camano Island. And now there are two left and Cama Beach became a state park. And the other one is much smaller resort area that still remains from that day. But it became a state park in 2008 at a time when they were closing state parks. But there was so much support for this one. First off, the purchase of it from the assessed valuation, the two owners who were the granddaughters actually of the founder, they did not want the site to become another housing development. And they made a deal with the state to sell at a greatly reduced price. And they took that money and one has a foundation and the other one has a trust. And they have sponsored a lot of the work that goes on there. So at a time when parks were being closed, ours was being opened because of the fact that there were all sorts of volunteers working on it. The quilters arose from a walk that Audrey McEwen and her husband, and I can't tell you his name now, were down there. And they met Jeff, the head ranger, and were talking about making it into the park. And they said, what can we do to help? He was a woodworker and she was a quilter and she happened to be president of our guild at about that time. 
So she went back to the quilters and said, hey, would some of you like to help me make 100 quilts? There are, I think, 38 cabins. And the idea was to put two quilts per cabin and have a few extras. And the quilts were just to cover the beds. People bring their own bedding, but to protect the mattresses. So Audrey and a group of maybe eight or 10 people started out making quilts that were supposed to be representative of the era of the resort. Well, since then, we do modern quilts. We do whatever the fabric or our pattern tells us to make. And we reached that goal of 100 quilts well before the park opened in 2008. But since then, I just checked today, our last quilt went to Susan for quilting, was number 674. And that's an undercount because as some of them were sold along the way, we replaced them with other quilts. So we kind of lost track. It could be upwards of 700 quilts that we have made. I was kind of envious of quilts in the garden in California. And I think it's Bozeman, Montana, that has a quilts on barns. And Sisters, Oregon has quilts all up and down the streets of town. And I thought here on the beach, we had all of these cabins that had blank walls that we could hang quilts on. Let's have a quilts on the beach. And we got together with various staff people at the park and tried to figure out how we might make that happen. In 2008, we had to come up with a date for a quilt show. And we were aware that a local little fair has always been, for over 100 years, on the last Saturday of July. And they've been rained out maybe twice. And we thought, let's go with a winner. So we picked that date, the last Saturday of July. And this year, that will be July 30th. And it will be our 13th show. And even during COVID, we did it electronically. Susan Palmer invested in a lot of equipment and training to be able to do a virtual quilt show. And last year, we were up and running because it was outdoors. It was well-spaced. People could wear masks if they wanted to. And we had great attendance last year. And when we first started, we had 150 quilts and decided we could probably hang 50 quilts. So that would get us through three years. Well, now we're doing about 60 quilts per year. And people were asking, were we selling the quilts? No, should we be? So the second or third year, we started putting prices on them. And lo and behold, we sold maybe 13 quilts the first year. Last year, we sold, I think, something like 24 new quilts and 30 gently used quilts that we call last call. And we reduced the price on those. They're quilts that have lived in a cabin for a year or two. And Peg Hayes Tipton, who is the handler of the quilts and the caretaker of the cabins, she pulls some out to make room for storing. We can't store 675 quilts. So she calls our collection and people buy them like crazy. So the money that is accrued from the sale of the quilts goes into an account that pays for our batting and our quilting. So it's money that just keeps going around and around. And with some 
extra that goes into some of the educational activities at the park. So it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. What a neat way to support the park. It is. It is. And we have one of our members who moved here from Washington, D.C. She had gone to the park once and she said, oh, my gosh, there are women here who make quilts and give them to the park. That must be a great place to live. And that was her attraction to Kameno. So we do life-changing work, I guess. <laughs> now, did we cover how you got involved with Kama Park? Actually, through the parks group, when I was doing trail work, when I said something about being a quilter, oh, we have a quilter group that meets, but they didn't want to tell me because they meet on the same day. So on alternate days, I work either in the parks or in the quilting area. So it all works out. We have great support for our state parks. And our quilters actually got the state volunteer of the year award from the park the year that the park opened. We are appreciated and we love doing what we're doing. Oh, we also have a foundation that runs a store and we make smaller items that sell in the store including these tote bags and things with a camera cabin block in the center of that. And they hold yearly raffles. And so as we're ready to prepare the show, which goes up in like an hour on Saturday morning at eight o'clock, then we get together and decide what coordination we need to do for the day. And we tear it down at four o'clock and we're done by five. It's there, you wink, and it's gone. It's a one-day affair. And in any kind of weather, we came close a couple of years ago. There was a little spritzing going on. We thought, worst-case scenario, we each take home two quilts. We throw them in the dryer. We bring them back. You know, it's only water. Anyway, we give the foundation first pick of a quilt that they think will attract people who will want to buy raffle tickets. So they have made over $1,000 on raffle tickets for a quilt that we donate to them. And they support a lot of activities at the park as well, the foundation. They're official. We're just kind of a club. <laughs> they did 501c3s and everything. Yeah. Now, I did find the website for Cama Beach Foundation. They're very supportive of our work, too. They publicize for us because we don't do much. Well, we do posters and one year, I'm looking right here now, McCall's Quilting Magazine got wind of us somehow. And in 2018, they had a two-page spread called Quilts on the Beach. So we heard in the aftermath of that that people were contacting the writer of the piece and saying, it's on my bucket list. So we never know where people are coming from to our show. Wow. Is there anything else you wanted to add? There's another quilt called Winding Roads was the original design. And again, I'm referring to this woman who just died recently. I think she brought us the pattern and I think it came through Missouri Star Quilting. And we have played with that design through the years and it's become our signature quilt. We use it on publicity as a background. And Lilia had just last fall made a number of the little blocks that are in the quilt. I put them together in blocks. We did a rushed order through Susan Palmer and got it finished. 
and she got to see the quilt and it is called hashtag because on the back she wanted a hashtag. There were diagonal cuts that were like 90 inches long. And I have a friend, fortunately, who used to do upholstery and she has a mammoth table. We used every one of her straight edge rulers to cut the fabric and stitch it back together again on the back of it. Anyway, it's called hashtag Lilia's legacy and she got to see it before she died. So a part of her will stay with us. That's neat. Where can people find information about the Cama Beach Quilters if they want to look you up? We do have a Facebook page, which is managed by Susan Palmer. I don't do that sort of thing. That was the vehicle that she used when we did the virtual show two years ago. And that gives some contact information, I believe, or just through Cama Beach State Park. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I so enjoy visiting with you. It was my pleasure. I appreciate your interest in our work. Mm-hmm. It's great. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>